from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded a telephone interview with Margaret Caton on April 24, 2017. Peggy has a Ph.D. in ethnomusicology from UCLA and a doctorate in psychology. As an ethnomusicologist, she's an accomplished musician that focused her research on Persian music and the Persian santur. She also did her research on a well-known Persian musician, Mirza Abdullah, from the early part of the 20th century, who happened to be a Baha'i. She talks about how she found out about Mirza Abdullah in the interview. She's a board-certified music therapist and a registered dance therapist. She has taught in universities on ethnomusicology and has spent many years as a licensed psychologist working with children and adults. We talk about how she uses music and dance as a therapist. I started the interview by asking Peggy where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I was born in Madison, Wisconsin. I liked it very much because we were in an extended family there. I had great-grandparents, grandparents, cousins, great-uncles. My great-grandparents had a cottage on the Wisconsin River, and we went there. Then we moved to Moscow, Idaho. The panhandle of Idaho was very cold there. And eventually we moved to Berkeley for six months, which I did not like. It was the big city, and ended up in Davis, California. 1955, we came. It's a beautiful little town, 2,000 people. The university had about 2,000 people in addition. So in the summertime, it was just 2,000 people. For me, it was the ideal town. It was like the all-American town. And I still go back there every year. It is my hometown. For me, I'm glad that I had the opportunity to grow up in the time I did, in the town I did. And what was religious life like growing up? Religious life was that I tended to go to the churches that my best friend would be going to, so or the neighbor would go to. My neighbor in... Wisconsin, they were my babysitters. They took me to the Catholic Church, and by report of my mother, apparently I really liked all the rituals. In Moscow, the friend I went to school with, she attended the Lutheran Church, so I attended that also, and I was very faithful to that church. I went every Sunday to Sunday school, and I received a Bible as a reward, and I still have that Bible. So then Davis had neighbors that went to the community church, the Presbyterian church. It was like one of the historic buildings in Davis is that church. And sang in the choir, was in the youth group. Now, I didn't mention my parents in any of this because my mother was an avowed atheist, and my father was not religious or had no affiliation with any religion. I really liked religion because, for me, it was fun and had music. 
And I also enjoyed sort of rebelling against my parents. And my parents, you know, basically smoked and drank and was, were not religious or actually atheists or anti-religious. So perfect opportunity for me to rebel was to become religious. Listen, I would go to any religious group. It was the time I was going to like three different religions at once. So when I discovered the Baha'i Faith, well, I didn't know anything about the Baha'i Faith. I had never heard of it, despite the fact that I found out when I asked my mother what religion my grandmother was, she said, Baha'i. And I asked her what that was, and she said, go look it up in the encyclopedia. So I looked it up, you know, and I still didn't get what it was. When my grandmother came to town, I was I was around 15 at that time. Coincidentally, there was a Baha'i family that moved into my town around the same time, and the head of the family, the man, was my ninth-grade English teacher, and his daughter was in my class. So I found out all of that when my grandmother wanted to go to a Holy Day celebration, some Baha'i Holy Day that was a happy, joyous occasion, and I went along with her, and I was so blown away by how different everything was. All the people were different. I mean, most of the people in my town were basically white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. But the people at the Baha'i meeting did not fit that profile. And even if they were, their personalities didn't fit that profile. So I saw Persians, I saw African Americans, I saw Bohemians living in their truck, people that eventually got married to a, a Muslim from the Middle East. It was completely different personality and culture. It was so lively and diverse. This Baha'i community, to me, it was like being liberated. My teacher's name was Mr. Seibel. He had firesides at his house, he and his wife. I really used to ride my bicycle there. Of course, I was still attending the community church and the choir and everything at the same time. didn't bother me. So I'd ride my bicycle down there on Friday nights. And there was really usually only one other non-member there, Marianne Montague. The teachings, what was being taught about the 12 principles, that, you know, men and women are equal. That was my favorite one, of course. Science and religion must agree. One universal language. So all of the different ideas that were being presented to me, it was just like common sense. It's like, why wouldn't I believe in that? Mrs. Seibel used to go to what is known as the Unity Feast in Geyserville. It was a Baha'i school founded in the early part of the century. And I always remember going to Geyserville. Geyserville was a very special place. It used to be a ranch where Mr. and Mrs. Bosch, who became Baha'is, had this ranch. And I've gone there more recently, maybe 10 years ago, still had the same feel about it. And it was in Geyserville, actually, I heard Persian music being played for the first time on the Santour, and it actually confirmed my desire to go to Iran later on. So I did not know anything about the Baha'i faith. 
or that it existed, or that she was a Baha'i, or that my aunt was a Baha'i also. My grandmother, she became a Baha'i in Ithaca, New York, through Howard and Mrs. Colby Ives. In fact, for a while, she was Mr. Ives' secretary. This was like 1920, maybe, was her first meeting. And my aunt also became a Baha'i at a very young age. But due to separation of the family, divorce, and so on, my aunt ended up eventually with my grandmother, and my mother ended up with my grandfather in Florida. My mother, because of the divorce and everything that happened around it, she always had not a very good feeling about Baha'i, so that is one definite reason why she did not tell me about it. So I'm sort of in two worlds. One is that I was not raised in any sort of religious household except for value-wise, and I knew nothing about the Baha'i faith. And on the other hand, you could consider me a third-generation Baha'i. How old were you when you actually became a Baha'i? It was after I graduated from college. I had fun with the Baha'is in college. One of my friends from Davis sent the Mormon missionaries to talk to me. So I went to their meetings. There was really no choice. If you're going to be part of a religion that says all the religions are from God versus you're in a religion that says this is the only one, I didn't want to go back to that kind of thinking. So anyway, I was in the Baha'i Club for many years. They would bring all sorts of interesting and innovative programs to the campus at that time. They were on the cutting edge. They were bringing civil rights issues. They were bringing Vietnam issues at a time in which nobody else was doing that kind of thing on our campus. In fact, the whole late 60s, early 70s just exploded with Baha'i activities. In terms of becoming a Baha'i, just finally, I think it was at Little Cottage on the beach. I mean, that was where we met a lot of times. I was having some sort of vision. I was having a vision of stream of water or river or something that I was sort of nearby, and I was in sort of a little stagnant pond or something. And my vision was of joining that river and not being stagnant anymore. At the end, I said, you know, and this is after four years of going to their meetings, being involved with them. I want to become a Baha'i tonight. I was either 21 or 22 at the time. It was 1968. You eventually got your Ph.D. in music, and you also got a doctorate in psychology. How did that happen? I mean, I had played piano since I was maybe 11 years old, and I majored in music in college. I wanted to become a concert pianist, but I had very extensive stage fright. It was just crippling stage fright, and it wasn't going to be pleasant to be doing that, let's put it that way. The only thing I could think of is is applying to musicology, which really was not appealing to me. After I graduated, my roommate said, oh, why don't you stay for the summer in Isla Vista, which is sort of an informal community next to UCSB. So I moved in with her and two other women. At that time, I met people from the counterculture who convinced me, I mean, really, this is what changed the course of my life. 
that I was following some sort of normative path, I decided not to go to University of Michigan. I finally went back to the university at UCSB to my old counselor uh, and said, I don't know what I want to do. And so she said, describe to me what you would like to do, just in words. And what I described to her was I wasn't so interested in the music, per se, that I was seeing at the college campus. What I was interested in is the music culture of the people, my friends and my colleagues, that were involved with the music scene. That was, to me, more interesting than the music itself. I was in the orchestra. I played bassoon. I was in the marching band. I played saxophone. I was so active in so many different groups. But what was fascinating to me is what was going on backstage, the personalities of the people that played the different instruments. So that's what I explained to this counselor. And she said, oh, that's called ethnomusicology. And they have the world's biggest program, the most famous program, is in Los Angeles. So I applied to that, and I got in January of 69, in the meantime, I think I went down to a Baha'i Youth Conference in in Los Angeles. It was in 68, fall of 68. And when I went down to Los Angeles, there was someone I met at that youth conference that gave me the number of a Baha'i group in Santa Monica. They offered me a place to stay until I found a place in Santa Monica. And when I was there, I met one of the tenants who was from Egypt, and he was also an ethnomusicology student at UCLA, and he said there is a Persian Santor teacher there. And I had heard Santor at Geyserville, and I was absolutely mesmerized by it. I said, oh, you know, this is just like everything just clicked into place. So I started going to UCLA, and I did take Santor from Mr. At that time, we were all being encouraged to go pioneering, go to some other country, Africa, South America, the East, certainly not go to Iran. Why do you say, but certainly not Iran? The whole pioneering thing is to disperse the Baha'i teachings. Iran was the source of the Baha'i faith. They had 50,000 Baha'is there. So it was not a place you want to go and disperse to. Plus, it was not a place you could really talk very much about the Baha'i teachings because it was basically a persecuted religion in that country. You could not talk about the Baha'i faith openly. Ethnomusicology was all about going and studying non-Western cultures. It's completely different now how, how ethnomusicology is working. But at that time, non-Western, non-European, high culture, classical music, basically folk traditional music from non-Western Europe cultures. So it just sort of coincided with the whole Baha'i thing of go to these other cultures, too. I just found the affinity that I had with Persian music was so overpowering. I would just be overwhelmed by the music and the whatever was going on with it, and I can't explain it. 
I said, okay, I am going to major in Persian music. I started taking Persian language lessons. It turns out there was a scholarship on behalf of the Iranian government for the summer of 1970. I applied for that. Now it's like the top well-known scholars in this field from, from all over the U.S. and sometimes Europe. We went there in, in 1970, and we stayed at the University of Tehran, studied Persian, and we were taken all around the country. This was totally sponsored by the Iranian government and shown all of these old cultural places. I actually went up to the Baha'i summer school, and I met Baha'is on a field trip in Gilan, which is northern Iran. On my way there, I stopped off at the 1970 Youth Conference in Wilmette, Illinois, which is the national headquarters, basically, of the Baha'i faith. Oh, that was like our version of Woodstock. And then to get on the plane again and go directly to Iran. I feel very fortunate. I came back to Iran to do my dissertation work in 1974 for three years. It was the top time of my entire life. First of all, it was the heyday of the Americans in Iran and the American scholars in Iranian studies. They had their own institute. I would go there. I went to Maku, which is where the Bab was kept, to the fortress. The prophet of the Babi religion, the forerunner to Baha'u'llah, the prophet of the Baha'i religion. I went places other people didn't go simply because as a music student with other music students, I went to Baluchistan, I went to Gilan a couple times to do more field work. My time in Iran would have been quite a bit different if I had not been a Baha'i. Being a Baha'i, I would give talks in Persian on Baha'i faith. It's almost impossible for me to convey the mood and the the happiness that we all had there. I remember the first fall that I was there, all of the Baha'is in Iran had gotten this communication from the Universal House of Justice, which is the world headquarters of the Baha'i faith. The letter said, get out of Iran. There will come a time in which you will want to get out and you won't be able to. I mean, it was a much longer letter than that. No one could imagine at that time, 1974, what was going to happen in 1978 and 79. No one could imagine the fall of the Pahlavi dynasty and what happened to the Baha'is after that and what happened to the whole country. And so some people did leave. By the time I left, 1977, I could feel things going downhill. It didn't feel right anymore. Honestly, I never wanted to leave, except I could feel the winds changing, basically. And I had done my research. The irony of the whole thing, of my thinking that I wouldn't be of service if I went to Iran, was that I was extremely of service, and I didn't even realize I was being of service because of the fact I went everywhere. I went all over the country. I went to all different types of meetings in Tehran, from the higher strata of society to lower strata of society. The fact that I was just there 
doing the music and doing Persian music and speaking in Persian. I have a friend here in L.A. that said people still remember me from that time because there were so few of us. And I was the only one besides one other person that had the East West Center, Steve Foster, that was going around and doing all of these things. There was a very interesting thing that happened. People kept telling me that there was a famous, in Iran, a famous musician. And, and I would ask different people, and I would say, I said, who's this famous musician? You know, I knew some of the current famous musicians. And it was at a meeting. They said, oh, ask him of the crossface. He'll know. He'll know. So I asked, and they said, gosh, I'm tearing up now. I said, who is this person? Now, the thing is, he said the person's name was Mirza Abdullah. He is simply the most important musician in Iranian musical history in the last 150 years. He single-handedly preserved the tradition of Persian classical music from his father and expanding it by just simply teaching everybody Persian music. And he received letters, tablets from Al-Baha, the son of Baha'u'llah, about music and about spiritualizing music and about praising what he did. It'd be like saying, I heard there was a famous Baha'i musician in Western Europe in the 19th century or something, and someone tells you, well, it's Beethoven. I had heard about this musician from all sources, not Baha'i. He's like the source of the modern tradition. So nobody's going to believe this. Not in the country where, you know, every other word is a bad word about Baha'i when I was talking with people. I said, nobody's going to believe this. We have to have evidence. I have to have proof. I have to prove it to myself. I don't even believe it. Whenever I was doing my own research, I would sneak in some questions about this musician. With whoever I was talking to, wherever I went, I got some of the original sources that talked about him. I talked to a hand of the cause, Alai. He actually was in a Baha'i meeting a long, long time ago where Mirza Abdullah had been playing his musical instrument. Mirza Abdullah died in 1921 or something like that. I was in a place and a time where no one else would have been in the right place or time to do it. I just happened to be there at that time where I could do that. So I came back and wrote up an article about it that was published. And I'm working more on research now to expand that into a book. I give talks at UCLA at Nader Saidi's class. He has a Baha'i Studies class at UCLA now. All of this time you had gotten your graduate degree in ethnomusicology. When did you get your doctorate in psychology? See, I got my doctorate in ethnomusicology or in music in 1983, and I taught at a few different universities, and I went on semester at sea. We went around the world, played ethnic music all over the United States. Then I decided, or it just became apparent, I really wasn't interested in being a college professor. I was looking more at what I originally was looking at music for, which is a way to help people, a way to heal people. And so I 
became involved in a music therapy program, and I did an internship at Camarillo State Mental Hospital. I worked at a locked adolescent facility, a level 14, extremely violent. I realized that the all the psychologists and MFC people, they were all upstairs, and they were all able to do deep work with these disturbed adolescents, and we were doing rehab work. Anytime any issue came up, we couldn't explore it with them. We had to send them to their therapist. So I got a doctor of psychology while I was working there. So I was able to do a couple of internships, one with an internship at a long-term residential facility called Ancipi Clinic out in um, El Sereno with, with people with schizophrenia and bipolar and long, long, chronic treatment-resistant people, and I used music there. In those days, to be a psychologist, you had to have a completely different supervisor for half of your hours. So I worked with a private practice person, and it was victims of violent crime. So I worked with a lot of child abuse and people who had some kind of violence in their family, or even gang violence. And I got my psychology license. I'm still an ethnomusicologist. I'm still a music therapist. Then I met this woman on an airplane. I'd just been visiting my aunt, my aunt that's a Baha'i. And she just passed away this year, almost at 99 years old. She was talking about how she ran this facility, and they were looking for a psychologist. So she hired me as assistant clinical director of this agency that works with autistic children and their families in school systems and in the agency. I became clinical director of that for a number of years. I became involved in Jungian psychology. I became involved in shamanism. I studied with the Foundation for Shamanic Studies, which is out of the San Francisco area, and I was initiated into shamanic work which is very similar to what Jungian psychology was. I was in Jungian analysis for a number of years. We used Santre. I believe that music and the arts and movement can be used to work with people on a really depth level. Currently, one of my Baha'i friends got me involved in one of the Wilmette Institute courses. So I'm one of the co-facilitators of Baha'i Faith in the Arts, which is currently ongoing. It's an online class. People from all over the world take classes, have assignments, and then have a discussion forum and network. And I'm working on developing a shamanic treatment method. As I was searching for something else, what always interested me from the almost the beginning of when I was a Baha'i what can be an effective method of actually developing authentic spiritual character rather than through imitation? What is a method that will change the person at a depth level? My experience of being in therapy and being in psychology and being in analysis and all that different thing, for me it was mostly cerebral. Talk therapy for me a lot of times did not get at the root of what was going on, nor did it go into the spiritual dimension. It all ended with the developing of a complete, solid ego, 
and the idea of expanding into higher consciousness was only for the fringe groups and mainly trying it on myself and on myself it's working i'm very happy with it peggy i have a question can you give us an example of how you apply music in therapy to demonstrate what you're talking about of taking someone to a higher consciousness than talk therapy can you give us an example First of all, it's still in the development process, so I am still working on it. But what I found through studying Carl Jung at the Jung Institute, how he used alchemy, all related to the Baha'i faith. There's a book called The Seven Valleys and the Four Valleys, written by Baha'u'llah, is a treatise to expound upon this concept of the seven stages of basically spiritual development, that was written about by the poet Attar in, I don't know, 13th century, 12th, 11th century. Basically, also what I discovered is this concept of the seven levels of spiritual development is a very old alchemical concept that's been written about for eons, started in Egypt and, and also Alchemy is part of other cultures, but Egypt is where alchemy started. And this is all, to me, spiritual alchemy is what we have in the Seven Valleys. What the Seven Valleys describe is different states of spiritual development, but it doesn't exactly say how you get there, how you do it. It just describes the state of mind you're in when you're in it. So Carl Jung took the old alchemical texts, which were very arcane and old, and a lot of people would think, oh, this doesn't apply to psychology and so on. He found in them a parallel way of working with those seven levels psychologically. And that's sort of what I thought I was getting when I was in Jungian analysis, but I found it just didn't go deep enough. So I said, okay. Let me try a bunch of stuff. I know how to do an active imagination with archetypes, which the shamans call spirits, and you can call some archetypes, using a dialogue. For example, you dialogue with the archetypal spirit in a altered state, and they use music. The shamanic tradition is like 95% drumming, chanting, rattling. It's musical. For eons and eons, people have used music. It's like the Iranian musicians. To me, they were all shamans. They played their music. It was improvised in a pattern in order to transform the people that were listening. And they would go in an altered state to do this. And they always talked about, well, does this music have what the Persians call hall, or does it not have hall? Hall means the altered state, the trance state. And musicians were always pressured to go into this altered state. And if they didn't get to this altered state, they were given opium, alcohol, whatever it was to get them artificially high. And that's, to me, what shamanism using drugs are also like the fast track, but it's not real. So now I've taken the alchemy, the seven steps, on the first level, which in the Seven Valleys called the Valley of Search, but in alchemy it's called Calcinatio, or the 
purging you of all those artificial and false notions, which is also in the Valley of Search. Take away all of the false notions and artificial notions and ideas and habits that do not serve you and are not authentic and get rid of them. The calcinatio, when you're working with metal, you put fire on it. The idea is it's a fire-oriented thing. So I just took the intent. I put myself in the framework and either call this archetypes. Take the idea of a cat, my favorite animal. Well, you might have an individual cat, and that cat dies, and you think, oh, that cat has a spirit, and the spirit dies, or whatever. It's not that kind of spirit. It's more like the archetype of catness. So it's the archetype of cat, spirit of catness, or like the spirit of the sun. And I call to that spirit, whatever it is that takes me to get into a framework, meditative, altered state, whatever it is, or I'll play on my keyboard and invite this receptive, intuitive state and invite this higher consciousness, part of the universe, part of myself, to dialogue with me and the music on basically ridding myself of artificial or false notions as a practical way of doing what it says in the Valley of Search or the first stage of the alchemy. Now, recently I've added movement to this. Afterwards, I'll get up and I'll do the same thing movement-wise. And I find myself shifting. I feel a shift in myself, but it started to manifest in the physical world. I was able to let go of musical instruments that I had been hanging on to for years and were cluttering my life. I was able to sell them recently, and then I was inspired to go and clean out my closet. And there are things that I've been holding on to for 30 years. I'm going to throw away now, or I'm going to sell. The whole idea of I get decluttering, decluttering is the end stage. It's like the growth level of getting rid of that which does not serve you. It's starting to manifest in my behavior now. The relationship of the seven states that Baha'u'llah refers to in the seven valleys on the soul's travel toward God, and you using music or the shamans using music as a means to traverse these states reminds me of the quote by Baha'u'llah who says, we have made music a ladder by which souls may ascend to the realm on high. Change it not into wings for self and passion. That's essentially what Abdu'l-Bahá wrote to Mirza Abdullah in much more detail. He didn't discount the earthly music, but making it line up, making them in harmony. I chose music as my experiment, basically, because music is something that transcends consciousness. At the same time, it can also convey consciousness with it. It does contain cultural elements to it. And same with movement. I wanted something that would bypass the rational mind and the rational defense system of the incrustations that we have in our mind, and which, for me, never really were broken through in talk therapy. I mean, because I was already a musician, it already spoke to me. I think I had been using music to treat myself for many years without knowing it. The altered state is not necessarily connected to the Seven Valleys, by the way. I just wanted to point that out. It is 
something that is part of shamanism tradition, and it's part of Persian music tradition, going into an altered state. Uh, It's like a transcendent state. It is a state where people believe that change can really occur because you are involved in the metaphysical realm of your consciousness and getting to the essence of something rather than the specifics in the outer world. You know, I've done Reiki, I've done polarity, I've done yoga, I've done all kinds of things. What I found there was, yeah, it gets to the body, that's good, because that's an element that talk therapy also doesn't get to. But the people I went to tended to dismiss the psychological elements and to have just vacuous affirmations in some ways. They just thought it was only body. I wanted something that could bridge the gap, that would include the body, would include the emotions, and include the mind as well. Because for me, if it doesn't go deep, the transformation isn't sufficient. It's just on the surface. I believe in the basic concept of using music to really transform a person. I've seen it done, so I know it can be done. Well, Peggy, I want to thank you so much for sharing your life and your work with us. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Margaret Caton, a board-certified therapist who uses music and dance to affect transformation. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
Yeah. 
eagle rises up above to remind me I'm the one that makes the wind. And there's no strength without the strength to deny you. And there's no power without the power to sin. So fly, noble one, fly. Look above the world within you. You can go higher if you try. No earthly things on your clean, mighty wings. Now you know the one who made the sky. So fly, little one, fly. Fly, little one, fly. Fly, little one, fly.
that the light of unity may envelop the whole earth and that the seal the kingdom is God's may be stamped upon the brow of all its peoples. God grant that the This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.